It's great to see everyone today. Um, we are moving through one of the key chapters in, uh, in Luke's gospel. There are, according to the, the scholars of this book, there are key chapters that really pivot all of what it is that Luke wants to, to teach us as he's inspired by the Holy Spirit to write down this amazing gospel. And of course, this is just volume one in the remarkable work that he provided for us as he wrote both the gospel and the Acts of the Apostles. And so it's gonna be fun to look at both of those together. But Luke, Luke 8 has got so much in it that you really can't progress through it quickly. And so this week, we're going to try to connect what it was that we were hearing last week about the parable of the sower. And I know many of you have been thinking and praying and, and kind of wrestling through this in your house churches and in the prayer meetings in the morning here at 8.30. You've been thinking through what it means for you to be good soil, how God might have to remove some of the rocks that are there in your heart and mine, how God may have to work in your life to remove some of the thorns that have grown up with the word of God in your life and, and even break up some of the paths where old patterns and familiar behaviors have begun to become impenetrable to the new things that God wants to say to us. Well, of course, all of that is enormously important and central to what it is that Jesus wants to do in our life as he brings the benefits of the good news to bear in our life and in the lives of our families, our friends and our communities. But Jesus, as he continues to speak, he is confronted with just a couple of things. The first thing he's confronted with are his, are his family. Now we're not gonna spend a lot of time uh, in this particular portion of uh, Luke chapter eight because just a few weeks ago when we, when we were looking at the material around family on mission, we looked at, at Jesus being rejected by his family and then telling his family that they had no part in what it was that he was doing unless they were listening to what God said. It's really interesting. In verse 21 of, of Acts uh, chapter eight, he says, my mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. That must have been a hard thing for his mother and his brothers to hear. They, of course, had been part of the rejection of his ministry and message in Nazareth. There's nothing to suggest in any of the texts that, that they weren't kind of participants in that rejection. They were as shocked as everyone else by what it was that Jesus was saying. Of course, they were able to demonstrate how, how one particular response to God is not definitive for all of your life. One soil type, if you like, thinking of the parable of the sower, sowing his seed and scattering it to different types of soil. One soil type is not, is not definitive for the whole of your life. His brothers, no doubt, were somewhat resistant to their eldest brother being Messiah. It's hard enough for him to be your older brother, but to think that he's the Messiah, the long-expected one, would be probably too much for them to bear. But of course, his brothers, 
become followers after the resurrection. And we know, of course, that Mary is there at the cross. So some great things have happened in their lives. And Jesus talks about what it means to be people who are the good soil, the the soil that receives the word of God as a seed and then responds by producing a harvest a hundred times what was sown. And he speaks about what that might that might be like. And he says it's like it's like taking a lamp and placing it on a high on a high position so that it can it can give illumination to many. The illumination that God has given you is no good, Jesus says, if it's hidden away under the bed. What it needs is a place of prominence so that we're free to share. But of course, there are all kinds of obstacles in our lives that prevent us from sharing with boldness what it is that God has done in our lives. And today, as we continue the story of Luke chapter eight, we're going to discover one of the principal obstacles that all of us face. And that obstacle is fear. We're going to look at how fear works in the life of anyone, particularly in the life of disciples and those who are prospective disciples. So if you'll turn with me, I would like to read from verse 22 of Acts chapter eight. One day, Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, who is this? He commands even the winds and the water and they obey him. Now we're gonna go on to uh, the next little narrative in a moment, but let's just pause here for a moment. In verse 18, just before where we read today, it says this, therefore consider carefully how you listen. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have even what he thinks he has will be taken from him. Consider carefully how you listen. Now, no doubt, this is a set of circumstances that the disciples have not seen before. This is a storm, not of God's making, but of demonic origin. Now, we just have to think about this for a moment because, you know, sometimes our theology doesn't really help us with the circumstances that we face. If you believe that every circumstance in your life has been determined by God, every, every circumstance, whether good or evil, has been 
made by God, then it will be difficult for you to engage with what it is that Jesus does here. Because Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves in exactly the same fashion as if he were rebuking a demon. In fact, the word used here for rebuke is very precise, very particular, and is always used in relation to spiritual warfare. This is a storm that has been created and perpetrated by the enemy. And Jesus has a stance, has a posture towards the storm that is not compliant, that is not submissive, that is not saying, well, I guess God's just doing his work right now. Jesus rather stands in the boat and rebukes the wind and the waves. It is not only irrational, but it is completely inconceivable that the second person of the Trinity would be rebuking the work of the first person of the Trinity. It's just inconceivable. This is something that has been created, has been, has been initiated, has been catalyzed in the hands of the enemy. Now, does it change anything about how God's sovereign work with all, within all of the circumstances of our life will be worked out? Of course not. All things will work together for good for those who love God. But that doesn't mean that all things are created by God. There are some things that we need to be alert to. There are some things that we need to have a different disposition to. There are some things where our posture needs to be not only alert, but aggressively negative towards. You do not submit to the wickedness that the enemy wants to, to inculcate into the lives of people. You don't, you don't just submit to the horrors and, and wickedness of tyranny and racism simply because you assume that somehow God produced these things. Of course not. The storm that Jesus facing, that was facing was a storm that was, that was only going to be dealt with by a word of rebuke. So he rebukes the wind and the waves. And of course, this, this idea, though perhaps novel to us, if we've been trapped in this, in this unfortunate and unhealthy theology of Christian fatalism, where somehow we think that everything is God's will. If we've been trapped in that deeply unhealthy perspective, then of course, it's going to be difficult for us to understand what's going on here. But, but this has a long and illustrious, a long and illustrious history through scripture and is often focused in the symbol of the sea or the ocean. The word yam in the Old Testament languages 
is a word drawn from the understanding that, that the Canaanite gods that opposed the Lord, the, the demons that we would soon recognize them to be as we saw the unfolding revelation of the New Testament, these, these powerful forces would often be represented in two locations. They would be represented by the searing heat and the devastating harm of the desert and the dry place. And they would be represented by the chaos and the uncontrollable powers of the seas and the ocean. It is the sea that God speaks to and calms. It's the sea that is divided by God's word and by his breath to set his people free from Egypt. It is the pride of the rising waves with their foamy heads that God asserts his authority over. It is the ocean into which Jonah is thrown and as he's thrown, it is stilled. All of these things, of course, ultimately are under the authority of God, but God, in his mysterious wisdom, chooses to allow for certain circumstances to be produced in the world that he has made whilst we await the great day of redemption at the return of Christ. And what, what is our posture towards these, these situations and circumstances? The first response is usually fear. Fear of circumstance. I wonder how many circumstances in your life you're currently involved in or can imagine in the future that produce fear in you. This is what Jesus says. Where is your faith? Why does he say, where is your faith? I'll tell you why he says, where is your faith? Because faith comes from hearing. And Jesus said to his disciples, right before they got into the boat, be careful to consider how you listen. And then he said, let's go over to the other side. Now if he says, let's go over to the other side, that's the word of God. And the fact was that they just didn't hear it. They didn't consider carefully what it was that God in their midst was saying to them. And so when they faced the circumstance, they were overwhelmed by it. Faith comes by hearing. And that, the word of Christ. Here's Christ in their midst. And he's saying to them, we're going over the other side. And that meant if they were gonna fly or invent a submarine, they were gonna go over to the other side. But you see, what they saw was what the devil wanted them to see. 
what they saw were overwhelming circumstances that they could not control. And so fear gripped their heart. Don't worry, Sally's not kind of disagreeing with the sermon at this point, she's gonna get a glass of water. <laughs> so we getting this, are we, are we kind of, we jiving with this, yeah, a little bit? Yeah, up in the cheap seats? All good? Yeah, okay. So that's, that's really, really important then, isn't it? That fear, fear is something that happens when circumstances overwhelm us. And it's in that place that we need to go back and say, what did God say? What has God revealed? And it's in that revelation that, of course, faith is born. And faith will always replace fear. Now, we'll look at the actual transaction a little bit later because later on, we're going to be praying into this as a community and we're going to be responding to it individually. But let's, let's, uh, let's continue a little bit and see what else happened because it's kind of uh, really quite important. Verse 26. They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the evil spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged him repeatedly, not to order them to go into the abyss. The demons were afraid. What were they afraid of? Well, this is, this is something really important about the work of Jesus, both then and now. Of course, even then, we're still waiting for the great consummation of God's plan when there will be a new heaven and a new earth and we will populate that new creation as new creatures. We long for our new bodies, says the Apostle Paul, and we long for the new day when the Lord will return and will be part of that new day. But as Jesus inaugurates the kingdom, introduces what will be by revealing it in our present, he gives us a taste of the future. Now, if you're sick, you taste the healing. If you're sad, you taste the joy. If you're sinful, you taste forgiveness. If you're a demon, you taste judgment. 
because the future is breaking in on them right there. And the future doesn't look good. You see, here these demons, they were just kind of hanging around and just loafing. They thought that they'd got a good thing going. They'd found a life that they could ruin, manipulate and destroy. And they'd found a region in which they could exercise the control of their master, the devil himself. The devil is not omnipresent. The devil is a created being, an angel of God who has fallen from his place of grace and taken with him a whole horde of other angels. And their, their fall is absolute and complete. And they have positioned themselves as enemies of God. But they're creatures and so they are unable to be omnipresent. And so the devil, and we don't know a great deal about this. The New Testament gives us some insights but, but doesn't give us a whole lot. The devil appears to have established a network of control within the world overseen by a hierarchy that he calls principalities and powers. And so clearly within this region, there would be the same kind of setup. And perhaps what we're encountering here in the text is Jesus, as it were, bumping up against the devilish principality in this region. There are lots and lots of demons attached to and associated with this man. A legion would be perhaps a hundred soldiers. It's a terrible state that this man is in. The compassion of Jesus, of course, drives him to deliver the man of this, of this terrible, terrible state. But of course, the, the absolute holiness of Jesus causes him to want this man freed and cleansed and the region likewise cleansed of this demonic presence. The demons think that the day of judgment has arrived because here's the Son of God. They've got no doubt about that. Here's the Son of God. And when they see the Son of God, they know it's judgment day. And so the future has broken into their present and they imagine that this is going to be the day when everything ends for them, when they'll be thrown into the abyss and they'll be cast into the lake of fire. And so they're afraid. They're afraid of judgment. Fear of judgment, of course, is a very thing, a very common thing. Judgment is intended by God for the devil and his minions, not for human beings. It's only if we want to be on that team that we get that fate. The intention of God, of course, is that none are lost. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And so win us from darkness to light and save us from judgment. And the reason that Jesus on the cross cries out, 
my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is because Jesus takes the judgment of a human being that is lost and in the grip of the enemy. And because he suffered that judgment, his intention is that no one needs suffer it again. This is called good news, by the way. I, I know it's kind of like you're thinking, I'm not sure I should say anything, but it's kind of awesome, isn't it? But the demons, they're afraid of judgment because there's no way out for them. Jesus didn't die for them. He died for me and you. I think that's awesome. I think that's awesome. And so the fear of judgment need not be anything that you carry with you. You simply have to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus. Claim him as your Lord and Savior. Invite him in your life. And you're in God's family. And I promise you, judgment will not come to you. Will your life be held accountable for the things you've done? Sure. We're going to get reward in heaven. But you're not going to see the abyss if you have taken the name of Jesus. Because it's inconceivable that the name of Jesus would be cast into the pit. Of course it wouldn't. So the fear of judgment is a real fear. A fear that, that many carry. But there's another fear as well in this text and it's worth looking at it because it's an important fear. A fear that so often we, we, we fail to recognize. Verse 31. And the demons begged him repeatedly not to order them to go into, a, into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. Uh, just a moment there. You're not allowed to have pigs in the Holy Land. This is still part of the Holy Land. And so this is a representation of uncleanness. The symbol is uncleanness. The, the pig is the unclean animal. And so this is a symbol of not only uncleanness, but rebellion within, the, within this region. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them to go, go into them, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep lake and were drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. What a terrible, terrible state to be in. I remember we've had several of these uh, situations in our lives. Um, 
There's one occasion where a, a young guy clearly was manifesting a demon in a worship service and uh, it was quite difficult to kind of handle him. He was kind of supernaturally strong. There were whole groups of people trying to wrestle him to the ground and people were kind of being pushed into the, into the congregation and guys were kind of getting up and said, okay, I'm diving back in again. And they, uh, there's all this kind of thing going on. And, and uh, I said, we just need to help this guy outside and then we can, we can get the demon sorted out. And so I asked the worship team just to continue for a little while. It doesn't take long to get a demon out. And um, we, um, we went outside and we cast the demon out and brought him back in. And um, it was an amazing thing to see him sit on the stage in his right mind. Dressed and in his right mind. It was a complete transformation in this young man's life. He brought his mother to church the next day and we all had a great conversation about what God was doing in their lives. But why would such a set of circumstances create such fear in the people of the region? Well, I think it's very simple. The other big fear is the fear of change. The fear of change. Do you fear circumstance? Well, you're like every other person on the planet. Of course, we're all going to face circumstances that are overwhelming to us. Do you fear judgment? Well, if you're a human being and you've considered eternity, of course you've considered judgment. And if you know the good news, you know the good news is that we can be free from judgment. And what about change? Fear of change. You see, what Jesus had done was to cleanse the region, was to, was to liberate this man. But what it looked like to the people of the region, it looked dangerous to them. Because change is dangerous. It looked, it looked fearsome to them because change promotes fear. But of course, without change, Nothing ever improves. Without change, nothing ever gets better. Without change, nothing ever grows. Without change, nothing ever moves. Without change, no one ever deepens or matures or becomes more healthy. And so what would the enemy want to do? He would want to promote change as something that is a bad thing rather than a good thing. And so the people of the region, they look at what it is that's happening and they ask Jesus to leave. It's a kind of shocking thing to me. It's a, it's a sad thing to me that there is such fear of change that people miss out on what God is wanting to do simply because they don't know how to deal with the fear. So what do we do? What do we do with all that fear? Well, 1 John chapter 4, verse 18 
gives us the definitive word on fear. And it says this, perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love. Where, where would we find perfect love? Let me just think for a minute. It'd be difficult to find perfect love, wouldn't it? Have you got perfect love? No. Have you got perfect love? No. We could probably go through a list, couldn't we, and try to think through, where are we going to get perfect love from? Here's Jesus. In each of the situations, and he is the solution, because why? Because he is perfect love. He's in the storm, God with us. He's confronting the evil, God with us. And he will carry us through the change, God with us. And God with us is perfect love with us. And so we invite him into our storm. We invite him into our battle, however evil the battle may be. And we invite him into the likelihood of change. And change is not something that anyone is ever going to avoid. And Emmanuel, God with us, brings perfect love to bear and drives out fear. So here comes love, drives out fear. And because love drives out fear, of course, we can hear a word from God. And the word from God produces what? So here's our message for today. Here's, here's the word for us to wrestle with today. There is perfect love and the perfect love is available right now. Right in the midst of your storm, right in the midst of your battle, right in the midst of your change, there's perfect love. And that perfect love casts out fear, drives it out, displaces it. The idea is that your heart is a container and fear is filling the container. And so the only way to get what's inside outside is to displace it. And so God pours his love into our hearts, says John, and that love displaces the fear. But of course, fear having been displaced needs something that's going to carry us forward. And of course, love being present will keep fear at bay. But what is it that God wants in our hearts? He wants faith, not fear in our hearts. And so his love is, is the reason why we lean in to listen. His love is the reason why we're unafraid to draw near his love is the reason why we open our ears and our hearts to receive what he's saying. And when we hear, 
His word creates faith. And you can stand on faith. You can walk in faith. You can move mountains with just a mustard seed of faith. So, here are these, here are these various different circumstances in the text of Luke's gospel. Different kinds of fear being faced by different characters in the story. But all of them are examples to us of what it is that we need to do today. Do you have circumstances about which you are afraid? Circumstances in your work. It's all right, Aidan. They're rhetorical questions. I'll explain to you later. But bless you for answering. Circumstances in your marriage. What about Thanksgiving? I bet you don't have any problems about that at all. And you've never had any worries or difficulties in association with family events like that, have you? No. That would never come near any of us in here, would it? Thanksgiving, Christmas, no, no. What about children? Any circumstances that you're fearful about? What about battles, struggles, difficulties? Where you feel as though there are genuine obstacles that have been raised by the enemy. Do you have any of those? Do you face prejudice in your workplace? Do you, do you face the demeaning and undermining words of people who dislike you, who hate you? What about change? I know that there are no changes taking place here at Apex, so probably we can just leave that out altogether. <laughs> but what about the changes that, that you're facing? Are you afraid? Well, here's the thing. It's no good us saying, no, no, I'm, I'm gonna claim I'm not afraid because that's the right answer. It's, the, it's a great result once we get through the process, but it's, it's no good pretending. It's no good pretending. We've got to face it. We've got to own it. We've got to say, you know, some of these circumstances I'm afraid of. Some of these struggles, they really cause fear in my life. Some of this change, it's like, I don't know. It causes me anxiety. And in that situation, this is what the Lord wants to do today, right here, right now. This is not something that he's got on his calendar for Wednesday. This is right now, right here. He wants you to receive perfect love again. Now you say, well, I've received perfect love. I'm a Christian, I, you know, I believe. And so then you start thinking to yourself, well, you know, I'm gonna show I'm not as mature a Christian as I thought I was. And you know, all the people in my house church will think I'm 
kind of not quite where I present I am. Forget about all of that. Forget that. What we need to be is just clear and transparent before the Lord and just say, look, Lord, this circumstance, this battle, this change is causing fear. And Lord, I know that you have perfect love that will meet me in that fear. And I know the perfect love that you've given me in other areas of my life. And I know that your perfect love has saved and redeemed and transformed me. And I see it so evident in so many places. But Lord, I want to see it there. I want to see it in this fear. And in that fear today, right now, the love of God will be poured out. And it will displace the fear. And as the fear is displaced, hope rises. And as hope rises, hope which is an anchor for the soul that goes through the very curtain into the very presence of Almighty God, God begins to pull on the anchor chain. And he draws us close through the curtain into his presence and he whispers in our ear a word of life that gives us faith. And so these three remain. Faith, hope and love. And they all work together to create the context where you're not only free of fear, but full of faith. Turn to your neighbor and say, free of fear and full of faith. Go on. Have a go again. Go on, I I didn't quite believe the first time. (laughs) Free of fear, full of faith. These three remain, says the apostle. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love because without love, we're never gonna get the others. But love will do its work and will cause us to hope and hope will draw us near. And as we are drawn near, we'll hear the word of faith and it will fill our hearts. Any Christians in here? Anybody believe this? Amen, 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 amen. Okay, so here's the plan. We've got two songs uh, right now after the sermon. The, the great clock tells me one minute and 30 seconds left for me to preach and then the trap door opens just behind me. <laughs> and uh, we're gonna sing one song and you're just gonna allow the Lord to work in your heart. And then I'll come up again and I'm just gonna give an invitation. The prayer team, we've got a great prayer team today, lots and lots of people in the prayer team. I'm gonna give the invitation. And the invitation is simply this. If you're afraid of circumstance, judgment, or change, then just come forward. Nobody's nobody's counting, nobody's interested, nobody's watching. It's just you and the Lord. And as I've said so many times before, it would be a terrible thing if all of this happened inside our heads and nothing happened in our bodies, because so often what that means is that nothing happens in our life.
This has to be made concrete. And so whether it's circumstance, or whether it's judgment or change, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of faith. Amen.